0: Welcome to the Life-Changing Principles podcast, where we take a new principle every week and explore how it changes our lives. I'm Leanne Hunt, ready to jump into today's principle. Today we're talking about compassion and the brain and body and how they interact. I've been learning the most interesting things about the brain in all of my psychology classes at Harvard Extension School. And it's been fascinating that every psychology class I take always has something about the brain and about how the particular psychological principle that we're talking about, whether it's resilience or coaching or positive psychology or compassion now, how it interacts with the brain. The reason that I wanna share this training with you is that we can do things that affect our brain and body. We can train ourselves to be more compassionate and doing so actually changes our brain and our bodies, and that's really more meaningful than we think it is. Our brains and our bodies have more power over us than we think they do, and so training them can be really powerful. Let's talk about how this works. So one of the first things that we learn is that the brain is not hardwired. We used to think that brains developed for children, but then by the time you got to be an adult, say 25 years old or so, that your brain was kind of hardwired and stuck and after that it doesn't change a whole lot. That's just not true. There's a whole field for a couple of decades now that's been developing called neuroplasticity, where they see that the brain is completely changeable. There's lots of things that can be influenced and changed in the brain depending on what happens to it. So here's a classic example. If you decide to become a taxi driver in a big city like London or New York, then after your training, you're going to develop a larger hippocampus. Not only does it work more and have more memorized streets and all the places that you're going and everything, literally your your brain size of the hippocampus changes. The volume of it changes. Your brain looks different if you're a taxi driver than if you're not. I just think that's so fascinating. Now, the changes in your brain depend on a few different factors. It depends on the amount of repetition that you do, the intensity with which that practice, whatever it is you're trying to change, happens, and the amount of time that you put to it and how much time elapses between when you're training and the brain changes later on down the road. The training for the taxi drivers makes a measurable difference in just a few months of training. And there are other differences that you can measure in the brain when you practice meditation, mindfulness, and compassion training, for example. Another interesting part of the brain is something called a mirror neuron. So our neurons are the little pieces of our brain that talk to one another, right? They have little synapses, little electricity, and they just talk to each other. And we have millions and millions and billions of them in our brain. And so the different kinds of neurons do different things, and there are some kinds of neurons, for example, that light up when we see something, when we watch something happening. There are other kinds of neurons that light up when we're actually doing something. There's a set of neurons that light up when we're grabbing something. There's a set of neurons that light up when we're smiling. There's also a third set of neurons that light up equally whether you're watching or doing the same thing. So there's a set of neurons that when you see someone smile or when you're smiling, uh, no matter which situation you're in, the same set of neurons called mirror neurons lights up. They can't really tell the difference between whether you're seeing this thing happen or whether you're, it's actually happening to you or you're actually doing it. So for example, if you see someone smile and these mirror neurons light up, it gives your body the sensation to some degree that you're actually smiling yourself. A couple of other interesting things they've studied about compassion in the brain is that the way that we practice compassion and meditation affects our brain waves. There's high speed brain waves and kind of low speed brain waves, and compassion affects those too. I also find it super, super fascinating that they're finding neurons in the heart. There's a whole new field of study. I think it's called cardioneurology or something like that. Basically, it's the study of the neurons in your heart. And they found that there are loads of neurons in your gut, in your digestive tract. And so all of this communication that's going on in your brain that we're familiar with also happens throughout your whole body. Our Our body and our brain is just this massive communication machine. So why do we care about all of this brain science then? Well, if the brain is flexible and plastic and can change and is a little bit moldable, then we would want to find ways to do something about that, right? Ways to train our brains to do things that we value. And so there is a thing called compassion training, both in Buddhist religion, they have compassion training for the brain, compassion meditations, but also in science and research, So this is what we've learned about compassion training in the research. Usually the compassion training is kind of a mindful moment, an imagination of compassion for people around them. So this is the way compassion training tends to work in the research. Every piece of research does it a little bit differently, but this is what compassion training tends to look like. It tends to be several weeks long and each day you have a little bit of time, maybe 30 minutes, up to two hours to understand what compassion training is like and to practice it. And so compassion training starts with becoming mindful and bringing yourself to the present moment. And so you'll maybe take a few deep breaths, pay attention to your breath. You might be reminded to notice that you're here in the present moment, that your you know seat is grounded, that your feet are touching the floor, and to just pay attention to your body. So that brings you to the present moment. And then after you gather yourself for a few minutes and come to the present moment, then the instructions usually are to think of someone who you love or who it, you are close to. And it could be a pet. It could be a loved one. It could be an infant And you take a moment and you wish for them to be free from suffering and extend to them joy and happiness. And usually this is done with some phrases like, may you be free from suffering. May you have joy and happiness. And you spend just a moment imagining that loved one being free from suffering and having joy and happiness. And then you move to somebody else. So for example, to yourself may I be free from suffering, may I have joy and happiness, and just sit with that moment for a minute of wishing your, your own self joy and happiness. And then you'll extend it out to other members of your community or family. May they be free from suffering, may they have joy and happiness. And then you'll move it out to a neutral party. For example, you know, the cashier that checks out your groceries on the regular, or just somebody that you run into on the street. And you would say, may you be free from suffering. May you have joy and happiness. And then you extend it to somebody that's a little more difficult. And you imagine that person in your mind and imagine the suffering they might be going through. And you again, consider, may you be free from suffering. May you have joy and happiness. And you make an attempt to extend this compassion outward to this growing sense of, or circle of people. And then you end with everybody. May everybody be free from suffering. May everybody have joy and happiness. And in this half hour to two hours that you're practicing this, you begin to let your brain ponder upon new things. Your brain, practices feeling compassion for other people that you normally wouldn't feel compassion for or ever have that cross your mind. So now you're actually kind of training, you're practicing, right? Well, there's a couple of things that they found about this compassion training. First of all, people who practice compassion like this, when they actually come across an image of suffering, they actually feel more empathy. They feel it deeper. And in addition, they're also more resilient from it. They recover faster from sharing that difficult moment with somebody. They return to baseline faster. All of the stress response that might happen, the cortisol and those kinds of things in their body, it returns to baseline faster. Another thing they found is that people who do compassion training have lower inflammation. The practice of training in compassion actually lowers those markers in the body. They've also found that people who do compassion training have less depression. They feel less depressed. If you think about how this practice works, what you're really doing is using the visual back of the brain. It's called the occipital lobe, and that lobe sends signals to the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus is the part of you that regulates all your body systems. It regulates your temperature so you're not too hot or not too cold. It'll make you sweat so that it'll cool everything off. And It regulates your hunger and if you get hungry it sends hormones throughout your body to say hey You need to eat and it drives you to eat all different kinds of of systems The hypothalamus regulates so one of the things that it also regulates are your emotions And so the hypothalamus will send messages to the adrenal gland and this it's this whole HPA access it's like a whole body system that happens and these triggers bypass your thinking brain and just go straight to the the hypothalamus which then regulates everything and so when you're imagining this compassion it actually literally calms your entire body it sends hormones throughout your body that are calming hormones that change the way your heart reacts and the way your blood vessels dilate it changes the way your gut and stomach operate. All of these things change because you've decided that you're going to imagine compassion for somebody else. When we were talking about this in class, the instructor, Chris Berlin, had an interesting story. He said that he was on an airplane. He does not like flying and he was flying overseas and he was like, oh man, I've got eight more hours of this. And he was just feeling this anxiety. And so because he had practiced before he decided to practice a compassion meditation while he was there on the plane. And so he began to just one at a time go around the plane and express compassion may you be free from suffering may you have joy and happiness to each person on the plane and pretty soon just you know to the whole plane in general. And the thing that happened is that not only did he experience Um, A form of connection to all of them to realize that they all had some kind of suffering going on. No matter how put together someone looks, there's always something going on with everybody. Or even if it's not in this moment, there will be at some future time. And he had some sense of, even though in this moment, I don't know what to do with this. This is hard for me. I'm not alone in this. Everybody has their own hard thing that they're going through. And he said that he was amazed how quickly his anxiety and his unease evaporated. And so anytime we experience some unease, some discomfort, we're exposed, we're vulnerable, we can drop into this moment of practicing compassion and seeing how it might change the situation. In the class that I was teaching in our life-changing membership, one of our students had this great story about a cat that she didn't want to have. So it was three to one on should we get this cat, and she was the one who didn't want the cat. And so it had actually been living with them for a couple of years, and cats do what cats do, and she was just so irritated with it all the time, just so frustrated that it was there. And she finally realized one day, this cat is causing me a lot of distress it's really frustrating well the cat's not going to change so if anything in the situation is going to change i need to and so she started practicing feeling compassion for the cat she would think to herself this cat didn't choose to be here it doesn't have a choice of what it gets fed it doesn't have a choice of where it lives it doesn't have complete control over its life And so as she began to feel compassion for the cat, it completely changed her experience with it. Now, at the same time, she still didn't want the cat and it still would bump things over and throw up and whatever cats do. And she still had to deal with those things, but it added a layer of compassion, which changed her own experience to it. There's one more part of the brain that I want to mention when we talk about compassion and compassion training and how it affects our brain. So the amygdala is a part of our brain that is sensitive to emotions. It kind of scans the environment and scans our thoughts. And when it sees something that it thinks is important to us, kind of alarming to us, then it'll notify us. And so that's where we get the flight or fight syndrome from, where it's like, oh, something's going on. You need to be ready for this. You need to you know, freak out. You need to stress out. You need to get ready. Like, let's do this. It's kind of the, the little stress trigger. But the amygdala also does that for positive emotions too. It's just a scanner and it gets our body ready for whatever we need to do in our lives. It just has this heightened um, readiness. And so it can not only do negative things like create fear and want us to fight or flee, it can also create a sense of of readiness, readiness to act and, and a positive, not anxiety, but a positive energy to meet life's demands. The research is really interesting around compassion studies and the amygdala. So in one study, the amygdala they found was less reactive after a few weeks of compassion training. And the way they would do it is they would show people pictures of just neutral people or people who were in distress. And originally before the training, their amygdalas would light up like, ooh, someone's in distress, this is a problem. And it would light up and kind of alert them. And after the training, for those who had compassion training compared to a control group, their amygdalas had less arousal and less reactivity and less response. They were less distressed. Also, another part of their brain that deals with empathic distress, they were less distressed after the compassion training. Another thing they tested in this study was where their eyes went in the picture. Did they kind of avoid the suffering and look away from it? Or did they actually focus in on it? What was interesting is that those who had the compassion training, even though they were less triggered by it, they actually focused more time looking at the suffering and paying attention to it and acknowledging it and being there with it. So their eyes looked at the suffering more than those who hadn't had the compassion training. Another interesting study about the amygdala took two different kinds of training. One was a mindfulness training where you're just having mindful attention on one particular thing like your breath. And the other one was actually compassion training where you're trying to send out compassion to all of these different people. And so in that training, the mindfulness training had less amygdala arousal. And what's interesting is that they didn't even have to be meditating for the amygdala to be less reactive. After the training that they had for a few weeks, a couple of weeks later, they just did a scan on a regular time without the meditation going on. And in normal life, their amygdalas were still less reactive because they had done this little bit of meditation training. What was interesting is when they did the compassion training, that was another aspect of it. Another group did compassion training. Their amygdala arousal actually kind of went up just a tiny bit. But as they looked at it, they also realized that they had less depression and less other negative side effects. And so they were wondering if this was an amygdala arousal that was more like a heightened readiness awareness, a readiness to act, a readiness to do something about it without the negative side effects of it. Our bodies and brains drive our behavior more than we realize. There are studies that show that if we were to guess how much being hungry affects us or how much being tired affects us or how much being calm affects us, that we're going to generally underestimate how strong those bodily needs and bodily changes actually affect our behavior and our choices. It's stronger than we think. When you think about it that way, our ability to practice training our brain to do the kinds of things we want it to do, to remain calm, to respond to suffering, whatever it is that we want to train is going to have a long-lasting effect and is going to actually change the shape and the neurons and the functionality of how our brain operates. It's pretty amazing. Thanks for being here and taking a little time out of your busy life for personal development. I applaud you for that. We take change one step at a time You're already on your way. You're already enough. You've got this. Have a great week and we'll see you for the next principle.